everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. We have got lots of news on the voice-activated doodad front and software front. We've got some focus on China this week and a really cool example of sensor fusion. We're also going to talk about light bulbs, believe it, and some industrial IoT news, plus a holiday pro tip from me, a question from one of our listeners about HomeKit and Belkin products, and we're going to talk about why the war of the future may be fought by something that's kind of like Voltron. We also have a message from this week's sponsor, Spark Cognition. And now, before we get into all the good stuff, let's have a message from one of our other sponsors. Home isn't just a place. It's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. Whether for your home or business, ADT helps keep you safe so you can feel protected wherever you are. Introducing the ADT Security Starter Kit. Everything you need to get started with ADT Pulse, including a camera professionally installed for only $49. Visit ADT.com slash podcast today to learn more. Requires 36-month monitoring contract. Installation and activation fees apply. Enrollment in QSP and EasyPay required. Certain markets are excluded. Licenses available at ADT.com. Florida E through F 0001121. Louisiana F 1639. Okay, Kevin, let us talk about voice. (laughs) (laughs) Let us talk about talking. Talking about talking. So, good news for people who liked the Google Home. Actually, before we get into talking about talking, any cool stuff on the Black Friday deals? Did you partake of any cool smart home or connected home stuff? I did. I really held back. I actually bought something that we had on our IoT gift guide list. I really like that Sonos One review unit so much that I bought my own, which I got like $50 off on. It was awesome. Smoking awesome. I did not get anything. I just couldn't pull the trigger. I... I looked at all this stuff and I was like, eh, do I need it? I'm feeling a little bit of gadget overload in my life. So hmm. I think it's a function of like too many cables, too many apps connecting. I just kind of got tired. So I you have more than most, though. I understand that. Yeah, I think I've hit a threshold. So <laughs> I didn't. But, you know, there were some great deals to be had. So hopefully you guys partook or you checked out our gift guide and were like, ooh, totally getting that. All right. So back to talking about talking. Google Home is actually getting a really valuable skill. So like the Amazon Echo, Google Home has, they don't call them skills. They call them, what do they call them? Oh, that's a good question. It's not skills. Uh, No. Apps? Anyway, I forget. forget. (laughs) We cannot remember. So the point though is, Soon with the Google Home, instead of saying, okay, G, talk to my LG Smart to turn on robot cleaner to make your LG vacuum cleaner start cleaning, soon you'll be able to say, okay, G, start the robot vacuum. And it's just going to know what to do, which is awesome because the biggest challenge I currently have with my Amazon Echo is Madam A, you know, ask June to preheat oven to 450 degrees, which theoretically should not be hard, but is kind of Mm -hmm. the cognitive load is definitely there. Right, right. This is actually this is a key reason why my family doesn't buy into all the voice command stuff. They're like, what did you name that light again? What's that called over there? And I 
kind of recognize their frustration. So when Amazon actually added the, you know, turn on lights to the localized groups not too long ago, they're finally using that because now they can just say, Madame A, lights off. And I'm like, yes, they're using it now. So this is great because I don't want to remember names of companies and products and everything. Just the thing. I just want Do the thing I want to work. To have done. Exactly. So, yeah. So Google has released this, which means that companies just now need to create their new voice commands for stuff. So this, if done well, could could make brands like give up the fact that we're going to buy all LG appliances in our home. And instead, we could just have a practical interface with them. This is mm -hmm. my hope. Samsung's actually the first to implement this, too, by the way. So if you've got Samsung appliances, you might want to test this. Yeah. Apparently, you can say things like pause the dishwasher which I don't yeah. know why anyone would do that. But my favorite, and this actually was so cool that I'm like, I got to buy a new washer and dryer. How much time is left on my dryer? Oh, mm -hmm. that's really useful because my dryer is upstairs. And if I'm downstairs, I have to walk a whole flight of stairs, you guys. I know this is really sad. <laughs> life is tough. Life is tough. My life is hard. So that is that. And we also have news on Amazon, Madam A, skills notification. I'm a little leery of this, but Kevin, you want to tell us what it is? Oh, well, this is actually already in place, but it's been expanded. I believe, oh, shoot, I don't remember exactly when this year it was. Amazon said, hey, we've got a developer preview of notifications for Alexa skills. And as of just today, in fact, they are expanding that to a wider audience. So this is going to be a way for you to get personalized notifications in, say, pick a skill. I don't know. Uh, maybe we have an IoT podcast skill and maybe we have a notification that your Echo says, hey, there's a new episode. Would you like to play it? whenever we have a new episode. So this is what's coming. We're going to get hopefully not bombarded with notifications from our echoes, but hopefully some valuable ones. I would like the default to be for me to set those up as opposed to having them already come. Well, and that's fine. I don't know exactly how it's going to be by default. It's going to be opt-in for users before a skill can send them notifications right off the bat. So if you don't opt-in, you'll never even get notifications. And then even if you opt-in, you can disable or suppress notifications either in your app or you can put devices in do not disturb mode. So Woohoo! All right. Woo. Then I feel a little bit better about that because yeah. the last thing I want is like my Amazon Echo waking me up at five in the morning to tell me a new IoT podcast has dropped. Because I don't have a need for that. Plus, I actually have to make sure my things publish. I have an IFT applet that turns one of my Hue light bulbs red. So I can always walk downstairs and I'm like, ta-da, the podcast is published. And if it's not red, I'm like, ah, quick. Why is it red? Red is usually bad. Make it green. You know, I've got the old school lights and they don't do green so well. Oh, okay. I almost, that was one of my Black Friday almost. I was like, ooh, the Hue lights are on sale. Should I get the newer version? And then I'm like, Stacy, you spent 60 bucks on these bulbs. You are not spending 50 bucks mm -hmm. on brand new bulbs a year later. Yeah. If there's a notification I want, and I know this is unique to me and other people who maybe live in a townhome community like I do, the mailboxes are down the street, obviously, not at the houses. And I would like to know when the mail gets here. And I would love a notification for that. In fact, I was actually thinking of creating a little IoT board system that pings me when they open the mailbox. So the challenge, actually, that's actually very easily doable mm -hmm. with like just a basic sensor. But exactly. the challenge is getting Wi-Fi or connectivity out there. Yeah, I was going to buy an NB-IoT dev board. Okay, yeah, like I think Particle yeah. has an NB-IoT dev board. Yep. Um, so, okay, well, there... Sorry, I know nobody else cares, but No, that's, a, that's cool. a really common <laughs> thing. I have a community mailbox too, and I actually wanted to set this up like when I first got my SmartThings hub, mm -hmm. the original, back in like 2013. And then I was like, I'm halfway out there, and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> 
You know, maybe we shouldn't even talk about this. Maybe we should build it, patent it, and sell it to the uh, U.S. Postal Service. Oh, they got money. Let me tell you. (laughs) Maybe we should build it, patent it, and sell it to Amazon. All right. Speaking. No, not speaking of Amazon. We just spoke of her. Waze gets a wake word and voice commands. Kevin, you were surprised that... Waze is even still a thing? <laughs> no, I, well, in a sense, it's the implementation. Waze is great. Don't get me wrong. I know a lot of people use it. But after being purchased by Google and having some of the Waze functionality integrated into Google Maps, I kind of thought Waze as a standalone was going away. Clearly, that's not the case because so many people use the actual Waze app. And as of today, you can, on iOS or Android, use the Waze app to say, and I think I can say this because I don't think I'll set anything off, okay ways. And basically, it's kind of like turned into a voice assistant. So now you can initiate your drive, get a preview of the route, you can send reports at a pit stop, all by voice, which is awesome. Love it, love it. It's in the Waze app, you're gonna have to look in settings, sound and voice, talk to Waze, and then toggle the okay ways function on. Wow. That's actually Mm -hmm. pretty cool because I don't use it now, but now I'm like, oh, but I could. And Mm -hmm. so, yay. Okay. Good news for voice. Let's move on to China because China has some news. Rather, actually, China itself has news. (laughs) Yes. China itself is the news. So... Two things here. One that has two interesting bits. China is beginning to set standards for the smart home. So this is the, okay, here we go. The China Light Industry Council and the China Household Electric Appliance Research Institute. They have released a white paper talking about NBIOT in the smart home. And the cool thing to note there, Kevin. Ah, is that they're choosing NBIOT over Wi-Fi, which is interesting to me. They're saying we're going NBIOT because lower power consumption, wide area coverage, and low cost, all of which I agree with. But I wonder why, because, and I don't know, is broadband penetration in China very low and therefore people don't have home networks and therefore Wi-Fi? Because I don't want my appliances connected to a wide area network, but maybe there's a good reason in China for this. I do not know. That is a really good question. I mean, when I think about China, I think about surveillance. So I'm like having your Mm -hmm. stuff all connected to a wide area network is probably easier to control for and surveil. Mm -hmm. And it's probably better for the manufacturers because one of the big challenges with connected appliances today is most people don't actually connect them. Connecting a device like a washing machine to Wi-Fi is actually pretty hard for most consumers. One, because they're like, what do I need this for? Which is totally legit question. (laughs) Even though you just answered it, how much time is left on the dryer? Exactly. <laughs> or they've got to download the app on their phone and that's irritating sure. and blah, blah, blah. So MBIOT could solve some of those problems, especially mm-hmm. if your vendor paid for the connection because they get a benefit of saying, oh, this is about to break or, hey, you need a new filter. Do you want to buy one now? So there are reasons to do it, but it does feel like, ooh, that's a scary way to go. The surveillance thing, which I don't disagree with your comment, but like, do they really want to know when I'm frying foods when I should be baking them? I don't know. Um, yes. But think about things like <laughs> controlling power. Like, mm-hmm. what if you're, you know how I think about this, because water is such an issue in my neighborhood. You know how you have that neighbor who like, runs the sprinkler on the off days? What if you're rationing power like we ration water? And with that kind of sprinkler system, your sprinkler would tell on you it'd be like, ha ha ha, you can't run now. Ratted out by the water company. Yeah. Well, sometimes I get kind of irritated. I'm like, neighbor, dude, We live in a freaking desert and we're in a drought. What are you doing? 
but mm. that's just me because I'm a. Crazy it's not girl. just you. <laughs> so the other news from this, the other thing these guys are doing is they're trying to set key standards in connectivity. Aren't we all? Indeed, we do need it, but also in human machine interfaces and the cloud computing platforms. So from 2017 to 2019, they're going to create standards and organizations for smart manufacturing from 2019 to 2022. They're going to create the smart home use standards. And then from 2022 to 2025, they are going to plan for those things to be actually used in the smart home. So I think this is a good perspective, like, hey, let's start with manufacturing, let's get that. And then once those are in place, then we'll set the standards for the smart home. And then we'll actually like make people use it all yeah. up through 2025. That's not a crazy idea. Nope. So there we have it. That is, oh, that's only part of the China news here. Yes. There are other companies in China. What there are, they, are. Doing? they are working together on IoT and AI. And by they, I mean Baidu and Xiaomi, which if you're not familiar with, Baidu is like, I consider it the Google of China, quite honestly. I think it has over 75% market share in search there in China. And Xiaomi is one of the largest handset sellers and manufacturers in China. You can get some of those phones outside of China, but we don't see them too much here in the US. There's really not much detail here. It's just an announcement that was made at Xiaomi's first developer conference in Beijing, just saying that these two are going to start working together. Don't know what they're going to do yet. I know Baidu does have like a voice controlled OS called Dual OS. So that's available in some of the Xiaomi hardware you can buy today. So maybe they're going to integrate that with whatever they can with Baidu. I do not know, but it'll be interesting to watch because this is going to be the big IoT AI movement that we've seen here over in China through these two large companies. Yes. And Xiaomi has a big smart home effort. They make outlets and mostly outlets, I think, right now. But I bet they're moving moving on to other things. So, yeah, worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, they work with smart TVs, smart watches, and all that as well, home appliances. So Think about this it as is a hardware arm for Baidu yeah. in some ways, maybe. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Hopefully they will be better at it than Google. By the way, you guys, the Google Pixel Buds that I got, I sent them back. Not a fan, too much. So I didn't see anybody who was a fan, unfortunately. Yeah. I read a lot of bad reviews, and that's disappointing. Google, come on. Okay, that was just my sadness. Let's move on to a really cool story about sensor fusion. The idea of sensor fusion is you take data from multiple different sensors, use algorithms, and you get different data that's even better. Pretty cool concept. This is kind of like that. I guess it's not technically sensor fusion. It is using cell signals, so the performance of your cellular network to detect weather. So this is a way to detect weather more accurately without buying more weather stations and putting them around. Right. We already have tons of sensors and radar and so on and so forth. So I, this was an interesting twist on, you know, leveraging traditional technology that we already have, the cellular networks themselves, to actually improve weather at a, at a local level. And it's Climacell, which is a Boston-based weather company. They raised 15 million Series A funding. And again, no sensors or anything else. They're using software to just measure how weather is impacted by wireless communication networks. Therefore, you can use that information to get a more accurate, detailed weather at local level. Which is awesome. And that reminds me of there's a company from Israel called Brizometer. I've written about them a couple times. They actually use, they measure weather patterns, and then they use existing 
weather sensors, but they're using like crazy advanced climatological models to predict weather locally without using more sensors. So this is actually kind of a trend and probably a smart one because maybe we have the data we need. We just need different algorithms to get to it as opposed to like spending more on sensors, which are awesome, mm-hmm. but you know, require maintenance, require batteries, require all kinds of other things. So it is, there's a third piece to the weather aspect. It's not covered by this company, but crowdsourcing. And that's how I get my weather actually through an app called dark sky. And it's uncannily accurate because it will tell me the rain is starting in seven minutes. And I show people that when I'm out at an event or something like better bundle up or get your umbrella out. And sure enough, almost to the minute, the rain starts falling. It's really impressive. Yes. I feel like there's a thermostat company that's actually working with either Dark Sky or another crowdsourced weather app to- like, Maybe Weather Underground or somebody. Oh, it's Weather Underground they're working with. Now, Boom. if only I could remember the thermostat company. But it's actually a really cool story. So the point here, crowdsourcing, sensor fusion, and- Data. Data. Algorithms plus data making our lives better. Okay. It was maybe not as insightful. It was a good tagline. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Let us move on to the inevitable decline of the hype phase of IoT. I should have mentioned this a while back, but a company called Emberlight, they made smart sockets. So smart light sockets and possibly bulbs. Yes, and bulbs. They stopped selling. They decided to shut down. They couldn't make it in the market, which they had a cool product, but they were like, just there's too competitive, too much we're shutting down. So they have a cloud service. So their light bulbs will continue to work for three to four months. And then they won't. <laughs> yeah, that's this gets back to what happens, you know, you're buying hardware or service. And in this case, the service is going to stop working unless somebody wants to pick it up open source somehow or whatever. This was actually a Kickstarter project. It was and I would yeah. say it's not if you're buying a hardware or a service product, I think you are buying a service product. Mm-hmm. So it, you have to recognize that there is an inevitable service product associated with these things that maybe we hadn't really recognized before. Well, I asked the question knowing the answer. You're right. Absolutely. But I ask it so that people think about it. Okay. Kevin's using the Socratic method with you guys. I think that's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. So also in other lighting news, stack lighting which this is really disappointing. And my friend Richard, our friend Richard Gunther, who's over at the Home On podcast and the Digital Media Zone actually reported this first. So kudos to him. But Stack Lighting has pivoted. They have gotten out of the consumer lighting business. They've sold their bulbs, it looks like. And they are now moving into the managed aging in place, managed aging care world, where it makes total sense They have built algorithms that understand where people are in a room, you know, based on sensors and the light bulbs. And they can see basically, oh, grandma got out of bed this morning. Awesome. So it's less intrusive or people feel that it is less intrusive because it's not a camera. So it makes a lot of sense, but it's also an indication that, my God, don't build light bulbs. It's hard. Well, there's just so many players in that space right now. Honestly, I mean, I, you could probably name 10 light bulb companies off the top of your head, I'm sure. Yes. And do we, do we really need that many? I mean, competition's great. I get that. But really, do we need that many? Well, and the challenge also with light bulbs is these are, once you replace your light bulbs, they're supposed to, I mean, if you've got LEDs, they're going to last for a long time. And it's really hard. Right. Like with me, paying another 50 bucks for 
better greens in my Philips Hue color lights, I was like, gosh, not worth it. Not worth it. And I would say there is a, Senglid is a lighting company that seems to have this that has, they make bulbs, they make bulbs with different functionalities built into them. So some of them have speakers, some of them have IR for security, some of them have cameras. It's very interesting, but they keep them pretty cheap. And what's interesting there is their model is that you will spend, you know, 12 to 15 bucks on a light bulb that's connected. And then in a couple of years, you'll be like, yeah, you know what? I need a different functionality here. Let's try this. I don't know I if don't that's going to work. No, I, I don't think it will personally, but you know, good luck. If it does, I'm happy for them. I just don't see it. I mean, I'm, I'm a one and done shopper when it comes to light bulbs. And I think That's, most people are. And I think getting people to right. change their mind here is going to be tough. So goodbye, Ember Light. Goodbye, Stack. You had a really good goodbye. product. But Stack, to be clear, is pivoting. Um, right. They're not gone. They're not gone. But their light bulbs yeah. appear to be gone. Those Ember Lights, they were in retail stores. They were. Yeah. This, these are not like, these are legit companies that made real products that actually worked. Yep. So, you know, it's hard out there, man. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Let us move into my holiday pro tip from Stacy. Okay, that's a terrible noise. I should yeah, not. Yeah, we need, we need music for that. We do need music for my holiday pro tip. So, I, for the fourth year in running, have pulled out all of my Christmas lights and connected them with various... Some of them are Zigbee, some of them are Z-Wave, and some of them are Wi-Fi outlets. But my pro tip to you is for your outdoor lights, label your outlets. So I take a giant, I'm using a a silver glitter pen because that's what I had on hand, but you can also just stick a piece of tape on it and label it on the tape if you don't want to put silver glitter ink on your... (laughs) outlets on your house (laughs) so i have upper balcony i have snow which i have a snow lamp that shoots out like pretty snow patterns on the garage i have a roof and i think i have a middle balcony and then i have my eye twinkle lights so all of those are permanently labeled so i can just pull them out and put them in the right spot which is awesome it saved me like an extra 20 minutes because usually what i did is i'd have to hook them up to my z-wave stuff re-hook them up you know, or spend the time figuring out which outlet was worked with which lights. Mm -hmm. So that is my pro tip. Name your holiday lighting to something. It can even be kind of generic if you want, but just give each one a name and stick with it and put that name on the outlet. It's going to make it easy for you. I promise. Good idea. So that's my pro tip. Ooh, my other pro tip is guys, the Amazon echo, when you group things into a room, like turn lights on, et cetera, It Mm -hmm. does recognize now the Lutron lights, which is awesome, except for two of my Lutron lights are ceiling fans. And so now whenever I turn my lights on, my ceiling fans turn on. So I had to ungroup that. And that is also information you guys might be able to use. (laughs) Yeah. So it turns on bulbs and Lutron. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a bummer because I really just wanted to be like, turn on fan, but it's like, that's not a fan, Stacey. That's a light. I'm like, ah, because we have stupid names for our fans. We call it our downstairs one is big fan. Our upstairs one is master fan. And I always forget, you know, I'm like, turn on the fan. It's like, there are several things share that name. Which would you choose? I get the same thing with uh, certain lights or rooms and whatnot. This is why I want to get away from the whole names thing. Let's have some context in here, you know. Bring on the context. But let's make it the right context because that is not a light switch in my case. Okay. Let us move to the IoT Podcast Listener Hotline, which is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. Schlage smart locks work with most smart home and security systems, so you can get the most out of your lock, whether you're an Apple HomeKit user or you love Madam A. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. 
And here, I'm going to warn you guys, this is a good question that is given to us by a speech to a text-to-speech robot, maybe? What do you think this mm-hmm. is that asked this yeah. question? <laughs> uh, no, I would agree. I would agree. So this is not an actual human talking, but I believe strongly- And there, there may be a good reason for that. Yeah. I believe I strongly know. there is a human that actually asked this question. So I was kind of intrigued by this. <laughs> Hi, Stacey and Kevin. I am calling on behalf of Michael from Brisbane, Australia. In May this year, Belkin announced a bridge to provide home kit compatibility. This bridge was scheduled for an autumn availability. Then at WWDC this year, Apple announced software authentication capability. Have you heard anything from Belkin recently regarding Wemo HomeKit compatibility? Thank you. Oh, Michael, we are sad for you because we cannot give you a definitive answer. Like, it will come out on December 14th. But Kevin will explain what he thinks is going to happen. Yeah, well, for folks who are not familiar with the actual details, Belkin actually announced back in May that Wemo devices would be HomeKit compatible through a Wemo bridge, piece of hardware that, I don't want another bridge, but okay, I get it. The reason was because HomeKit required hardware certification, an actual implementation of a security chip. However, that has changed. Apple now does not require it. They can do it on the software side. So I suspect, Michael, that the Wemo bridge will never come to pass, which is fine by me. Unfortunately, Belkin hasn't announced anything yet in terms of this. So I don't know really when they're going to. I would presume that CES in January, which Stacey and I will both be attending, and we will certainly be talking to the Belkin folks and visiting the Wemo area, that maybe that's the time that they announce it. I can't see. If they haven't announced it by now, I suspect CES is really the the big thing, the time and place. So hopefully the second week of January, we will have a definitive answer for you. I hope it is not a bridge. I hope it is something they can do on the software side and just make it so. Yes. I'm actually, because the HomePod was, the Apple HomePod was delayed until early 2018. I'm actually hoping we see a lot of really cool announcements at CES, even though Apple doesn't historically, they don't go. But I'm hoping we see a lot from partners or hear from people that this is going to happen. Like I hope the HomeKit ecosystem coalesces sometime after that, because right now it's not as compelling or as rich as some of the other things and or other options out there. And I think that's a real shame because yeah and just looking back at prior ces's a lot of the announcements have been we're going to have this it will come this year i think we're at the point now where you will see more actual implementations and products available like immediately or soon not sometime next year we're going to have this so that's my hope michael that belkin says we got it as of today boom yeah i would like it is past time to yes poop or get off the pot That's right. I said it. You did. You went there. (laughs) I went there because I am so frustrated. So now, after that, I feel like we should take a moment for a word from our sponsor. And then after that, stay tuned for the Internet of Battle, how we are going to connect all of our robots, our drones, our soldiers, our sensors to create the battlefield of the future. This is a fun conversation I had with someone from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So stay tuned for that. Oh, and before I go, I just want to remind everybody that Thursday, that is actually today, Thursday, November 30th, if you're listening to the podcast on the day it came out, and you're in San Francisco, I am doing an event at Target's Open House, and we are going to be talking about business models for the Internet of Things. So you kind of want to go if you're in town because, you know, It'll be a cool conversation and you can meet me or you can watch it live streamed on Facebook and I'll be sharing a link for that. 
And that's the one across from Moscone Center. It is the one across from Moscone. Plus, you can see all the cool gadgets they have, because they have lots of cool gadgets there. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. We are interrupting this week's podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Spark Cognition. I have here Paolo Barrera from Spark Cognition to talk about the buy versus build dilemma. Implementing AI in Utilities. Many companies have internal data teams, and they're looking to implement a machine learning solution internally. What are some of the factors they should consider in doing this? Yeah, first question typically comes from the executive team. What is the company's core competences and how it aligns with the idea of building a team to create cognitive analytic solutions in-house? Another aspect is when you assess what is the strategy required for mid-long-term success, and how far can you really go on your own? Thinking about implementing a machine learning solution seems to be pretty attractive at first. Then you realize it is actually just the tip of the iceberg if you try to build a cognitive solution that is scalable and sustainable. And finally, implementing an AI strategy is a journey. It starts with executive team sponsorship. It propagates throughout the stakeholders. So what advantages and services can an external vendor provide? One, an AI company like Spark Cognition has tested and evaluated existing and available tools, algorithms, and techniques that are in the market or in research. So knowing the best practices and having access to the right tools can make a significant difference in how long it takes to complete a use case application. So time to value is one benefit. Second, computing middleware platforms, OS algorithms continue to evolve and change rapidly. Maintaining and upgrading applications quickly become a bottleneck. So with that, long-term support is a great benefit from vendors that are specialized on that. And finally, I would argue that vendors are exposed like no one else to hundreds of use cases. And this knowledge out of the box is extremely beneficial when leveraging that knowledge to support a particular client. So what would a partnership look like? What does the internal and external team, which responsibilities would they have? So I would like to start saying that we become an extension of our clients' capabilities. For instance, we engage on a pilot project. We first agree on a success criteria and feasibility for the project. Then we break the project into specific and manageable milestones that both sides, client and our teams, can understand, influence, and drive. In summary, the internal team on the client side will provide us with subject matter expertise to fine-tune the application. They will also provide inputs to define the usability of the solution. And that is actually critical because in many cases, the same application will be used by different parts of the organization on the client side. On our end, the external team, we will do the end-to-end effort. We'll do project management, we'll do data ingestion, we'll do dashboards, and we'll do the final deployment. Paulo, this sounds great. Where can I go to find out more? So you can look at our website, sparkcognition.com. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Tariq Abdul-Zahar, and he is a professor of computer science at the University of Illinois, and we are talking about the battlefields of the future. Hi, Tariq. How are you doing? 
Hi, Stacey. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Man, I am super excited. Actually, I think I'm a little bit scared. But let's break this down for people. All right. So you guys recently won a grant from the Army Research Labs for helping develop a battlefield of the future. What does that look like? The vision for this came from the fear or concern that in the future, the U.S. may face much more sophisticated adversaries and that technologies need to be ready for this threat. That led to the idea of envisioning a new battlefield technology, perhaps a superior one, technologically advanced one, that will network all the entities uh, that will allow them to work autonomously, intelligently, and, and accomplish missions without involving perhaps as much risk to the human. Okay, so I have so many questions because this feels like the stuff of science fiction. It also feels like, is the idea that in the future, we're going to just send out drones and robots to fight for us? I think the idea is that we want to really put uh, people out of harm's way. If there is something that we can do with robots, we should definitely do it with robots. Not everything we can do with robots. So, for example, one of the big issues in this project is that robots shall not kill without human consent. Somebody has to push the button. That's a safety thing. But there are many other functions that we can automate. And the question is, to what degree we can push the autonomy, how practical that is, how safe that is, how ethical that is, to what degree we can push the intelligence, and how will that factor into sort of safety for the warfighter. Okay. So today we use robots already to sniff out and maybe even defuse bombs or at least blow them up. And then we also use drones extensively. And so what changes are we envisioning happening for this project? Because I feel like we already use a lot of technology. So what's going to be different? Definitely, definitely. There are definitely already several pieces. And in fact, the idea of the battlefield of the future being uh, networked leverages what the U.S. is already really good at. We are, in fact, good at automation. We are, in fact, good at artificial intelligence. And this takes it to the next step. We want to network all these things. They're not individual entities that are working by themselves or controlled by individuals. Now we want to think of them as these thousands of pieces of a single distributed entity. And perhaps the analogy that comes to mind is with Transformers from the movie Transformers, where you have that thing that shapes into whatever you tell it to, except here it's built of thousands of distributed little digital components, but they work together as a team to accomplish a joint mission. So that's the vision that entity now has to be intelligent. It has to think on its own how to accomplish its mission. It should not be micromanaged. I don't want to tell all its thousand parts what to do. I want to be able to tell that entity as a whole what to do, and it should be able to figure out how to do it and how to distribute the jobs to the individual parts. Now, the individual parts could be anything. It could be the armor that people wear. It could be the weapons themselves. It could be the radios. It could be mobile drones. It could be sensors that deliver information. It could be even algorithms, AI sort of components. All of these are networked together. All of these are part of the mission, part of that distributed transformer. Okay. See, that sounds more like Voltron as opposed to a transformer because that, that, you know, you had the five cats coming together. But yeah. this is not an 80s cartoon show. This is real life. So when you say things working together, is it the idea that a soldier's 
gun might work in conjunction with information from a drone. Can you put me in the mindset of someone maybe on the battlefield and then maybe someone who is commanding the battle, what they will see and how they will interact with this? Absolutely. So it could be that one of the types of missions is a rescue mission, a disaster response mission. We had lots of recent hurricanes. In those types of missions, first, the environment is hostile. It would be really nice if we could tell a team of machines and sensors to go and find survivors, let's say, in the aftermath of a hurricane, find out their needs, where they are, how accessible they are, what is the best way to come and get them perhaps even deliver some first aid to them until human help comes in. Now, to do that, we need to configure in the right sensors. How are we going to detect things? We need to configure the right moving part. We need to perhaps configure things that can deliver supplies. We, as a human on the battlefield, as a commander, I don't want to have to make those decisions myself and say, take three of these sensors and five of those sensors. I want to leave that decision to my artificial intelligence. I want to tell it my intent. My intent is to save, for example, survivors to go find and rescue them. Then the machines would be able to understand what that means in terms of sensory devices, in terms of actuation devices, in terms of algorithms that need to be configured in to enable that. And they would go ahead and do it. They can give me some status updates. I may manage them, but at the high level. Okay. So in this idea, I feel like there are a couple of possible weak links. So one is right now we have terrible security for connected devices in all honesty and updating them is a pain and people crack them all the time. So that feels like, you know, all we have to do is go to war with someone who's really good at computers and they will be able to hack our systems. So how do you build something that is both secure, resilient, and then also is aware that it's been compromised? This is a wonderful question. And in fact, this is exactly why we need universities to be involved, why this is a research project. It's not a deployment exercise, because indeed, there are some very, very tough questions in security, some very tough questions in resilience, some very tough questions in safety, and that's why it needs research. That's why we have 10 years to essentially figure these things out. Indeed, security is one of the main thrusts in the project. Everything we do has to be secure. Everything we do has to be safe, has to be resilient. It has to operate in a very hostile environment. One of the ways that this is different from similar technologies for the Internet of Things that are used in civilian life is that we are operating in a very demanding, hostile environment. People are trying to break up the components. People are trying to infiltrate the components. People are trying to disrupt communications. How do we face that is one of the big challenges. That's what the research team is going to be looking at. Let's talk about how to break that up because I think there's some learnings for people. Obviously, right now, one of the big thing is, you know, cracking various protocols. Another big thing is actually compromising the supply chain. And if I think about manufacturing electronic components, that feels actually perhaps the most risky because we don't do as much manufacturing of our electronic components that we can actually control. So I'm curious what you you guys are thinking about there. One of the very interesting aspects of that project is that the vision assumes that the components are not entirely trusted. So not all the components, sort of the team has to watch each other. Not all the components are trusted. Yeah, some of the components perhaps are trusted, but some of the components are what we call gray components or even red components. 
gray is where you don't quite know if you should trust this. Red is where it actually maybe belongs to the enemy and you want to see if you can somehow extract value of it anyway. Perhaps it's a camera. But the point is, we do not assume that the network itself, that the components themselves are all 100% trusted. And so part of the resilience, part of the security is to indeed build the mechanisms that allow you to very quickly discover components that are not doing what they're supposed to or that may have been infiltrated and eliminate them or isolate them in ways that prevent these components from doing damage. What can we learn from technologies that are already out there about security and resiliency, especially when it comes to things like using machine learning to detect weird behavior on a network, for example? So I think the security, to a large extent, in, in networks is a hard problem. Clearly, the more components you put into a network, the harder it becomes to make sure that all these components are operating correctly. The other thing is that sometimes there is benefit to scale. The more components you have, the more opportunity you have to be resilient because even if some of the components go bad, you can compensate. And so I think one of the challenges will be, yes, the more components get networked, the more opportunity the enemy will have to go and and perhaps try and compromise one in order to get to the other. However, if the resilience mechanisms are in place that are able to, in fact, quickly respond and isolate, then that threat is mitigated. The other part is we need to make sure that the assembly is safe. And I think that's one of the critical lessons that we learn from what I want to call the field of cyber physical systems, you know, systems where machines interact with the physical world. So we've learned how to build, for example, planes passenger airlines that are computer-operated and extremely safe. Of course, there are accidents, but a lot of the time it's human error. It's not because somebody hacked into the machine. We can learn from that. One of the key, perhaps, lessons there is the skill that allows us to build systems that continue to operate correctly, even when a part of the system has been compromised. This is something that we need for a lot of these automated systems like autonomous cars, like planes, autopilot. And I think we can carry that along to the battlefield because components will be compromised. Systems have to operate with those things compromised in them. Components will be shot at. Communications will be disrupted. And the system needs to be engineered in such a way that it tolerates that. I agree. And hopefully some of this will apply back out to commercial projects when it comes to you know connected factories and other autonomous systems that we're trying to build today. And we're like, eh, it's okay. I do believe that some of the lessons learned from this project will definitely be applicable to the industrial domain and the civilian applications. That's absolutely true. Okay. Let's get a little deep into this because you did also mention ethics. And I imagine that's associated with soldiers killing with a button, which is already happening today. At some level, the idea of sending drones and robots out to fight our battles for us There's an economic cost, but part of the horror and kind of deterrent against war has always been the high cost in lives, or maybe I'm just a naive individual. So I'm curious what it means as we automate war. Will that make it more likely? That's a wonderful question. I think the idea is actually to build the deterrent. Think of it that way. If we don't do it and others do it, would we be in good shape? My guess is not. We will not be in good shape. And so the question is, to what degree do we want to push it on our end? I think there is 
an important role of, for ethics here. And in fact, we do have you know people on the team who are looking at sort of ethics in design. And that's the practice that is done in many larger projects because a lot of the design decisions that you do have huge implications on how the product is used, uh, what it enables, what it doesn't enable. And these affordances can be empowering to what we want to happen or not. I think we need to think through the implications of what it means to network things, what it means to automate things, what it means to delegate certain decisions to the machine, and what the machine should follow as far as ethical code. When I make a decision, I make it in accordance with laws, in accordance with ethics, in accordance with knowledge that I have that sort of makes me optimize. Well, we can impart that knowledge on the machine, but we also then need to make the machine understand the laws and the ethics so that it does the right thing. I think it's a wonderful design problem. It's something that sort of bridges the technical and the social and the ethical and the legal, and we need to make it safe. We need to make sure that the machines do not sort of perpetrate offenses that we would be liable for in a bad way. They're not going to go killing people. Another question kind of tied to the ethics is right now, if we look at what's happening with fighting in Syria, for example, what you see a lot of is civilians are left. And what becomes interesting to me is this idea if we have our robots fighting wars for us, it feels like a lot of civilians could be caught in the crossfire, quite literally, in ways that I don't know if we're really thinking about. So I, I'm curious kind of how you guys think about battlefields that are also not actually a battlefield. They're cities and homes and neighborhoods. So actually, I think what you said is one of the important motivations for this, that one of them, you know, theaters of operation, if you will, is cities, that most people today live in cities. And so future wars will increasingly be in cities. And I think it's really hard, actually, to fight a war in a city because it's full of civilians, clearly, and any damage that you do will have implications. You know, collateral damage right now is a huge problem, and it's, it's not necessarily something that we cannot improve. The idea is that if we have smarter weapons, maybe they can, in fact, reduce collateral damage. So I'll tell you a story, and this happened to a friend of mine. So they were in this war zone, they were driving across a bridge, and there was a fighter jet, apparently an enemy fire. And the fighter jet, you know, flew over the bridge and then circled, circled again until my friend got off the bridge. You know, there was a civilian just driving around. And then that jet blew up the bridge. And so the jet actually saved my friend's life. They waited until the civilian went away. Now, today we have this automatic weapons. You know, you, you push a button and then a rocket goes. Maybe you check, oh, there's nobody there, so no, no civilians. You push a button, the rocket goes and flies, 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 flies. Then maybe by the time it lands, there's a civilian there and there's no way to stop it at that point. Well, if the rocket was smart, maybe the rocket can do what that fighter jet pilot did. It can wait around just a little bit and get the civilian out of the way and then blow up. My point is we tend to think of smarter weapons as more dangerous ones, but actually they might be safer ones. And that is an interesting angle to explore. How can we make wars safer for the civilian with less collateral damage? So I think there is the other side of the coin, and it's very fascinating to think, can we create, in fact, environments? Can we create systems that would reduce collateral damage to zero? Wouldn't that be a nice goal to try to sort of live up to in the future? And I think maybe with smarter technologies, we can. So, so that's the other side of the coin. Okay. And then 
What about right now, our military hardware is going to places like police departments. And I'm thinking specifically back, I think it was last year, in Dallas, the Dallas police were faced with a shooter, and they actually quartered him in a parking garage and took a bomb disposal robot and then stuck a bomb on it and went in and blew the guy up, which is legally kind of, I I feel like there's a lot of ethical questions around something like that, where we have in the US a history of our military gear going to police gear, getting sent down the chain. And are we prepared for that as we connect stuff and make it even smarter? So there is one, maybe there's a couple of things that I should mention. One of them is that And this is a big item for this project that we are not sort of automating kill functions. And I think that's an important distinction to make because people automatically think, oh, robots fighting wars, you know, killing each other. No, nobody's going to ever kill anybody unless a human pushes the button the way they push the button today. And so I think automating the kill function is a completely different level and it's something that we are not going to do as sort of an important decision that we made out from the start. Now, there are a lot of other functions that can be automated. So, for example, data acquisition. You know, I need intelligence on things. I need to collect sensory data. I want to deploy my sensors somewhere where they can see the enemy and I want them to tell me what the enemy is doing. I want them to report when something happens that requires my attention. I want them to do that automatically. I want them to automatically understand when the enemy is doing something that might a threat to me. So that delivery function of those alerts and that information is a lot more amenable, let's say, to to automation and to auto- exploiting the intelligence and the autonomy of the machine without having to worry about people being killed by those robots because, you know, they're safe. They don't kill people. Okay. Tarek, I have learned a lot and I am, again, probably a little more scared than excited, but I am intrigued to see what we can learn from this project. So thank you very much for coming on this week. Oh, thank you very much for hosting me. That was fun. That's all for this week's Internet of Things podcast. Remember, if you want more IoT news, please sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 